If you would please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3. Do pray this week and encourage those who aren't here this morning. A number of people out traveling. Uh, it seems that spring break almost came late this year after Easter. People taking off and traveling back into town today and over the coming days. So please be in prayer for them. And drop someone a note of encouragement. Let them know that you miss them, that you are praying for them and care about them. First Peter chapter 3 this morning, we are looking at verses 18 through 22. As we consider the victorious Christ and his victorious people this morning from this text. Let's pray once again and ask for the Lord's help. Oh God, again, this is your word. It's not given with the wisdom of man or from the wisdom of man. It's given from your hand. And Father, we are, as the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, we are completely dependent upon your Holy Spirit to be able to discern and to understand it, for it is spiritually discerned. So Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear, a mind to understand, a heart to love, and a will to apply what we see from your word this morning. Help us. We are in need of being fed in our inner man, the deepest part of who we are and what we are. And so nourish us this morning, Holy Spirit, by pointing us to Christ. Make us what we are not. Give us what we do not have so that we can sing a song that we would never have sung Live a life that we are incapable of living apart from Christ. For we pray this in His precious name, His victorious name. Amen. Let's look at the text this morning. Peter writing his just, you remember the context here, he has just finished commending these people in their suffering, encouraging them to suffer well. Not because of unrighteousness, but even in their unrighteousness, it, it may be that they suffer. And he is encouraging them in that, using Jesus and his example of long-suffering patience in his own suffering. And then turns now to verse 18. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, this was not planned to be at this particular text on this particular Lord's Day after Easter Sunday. But I think this is perhaps one of the best texts that we could dive into this morning on the Sunday following Easter. Because of the victorious 
message and the victorious picture of a risen and reigning Christ that is before us. He is still risen. He is still reigning. Now, you may have read that text along with me this morning. I hope you did. And as you read it, you may be approaching what is to follow in the next few minutes with a sense of awe, a sense of appropriate trembling at its appearance of confusion on the surface of this text that we read before us this morning. After all, it's not every Lord's Day that we talk about Jesus preaching to spirits who are in prison. It's not every Sunday that we talk about and have to wrestle with Peter's words that baptism saves you. And so you may be looking at this thing, oh, this is going to get really interesting. This could, this could be really uh, monumental today. Let's see how Brian unfolds the text this morning. But we need to approach this through the lens and with the understanding of Peter's conclusion to the text. That Christ is victorious. That is the overarching idea. If you were to ask me, you know, wake me up in the middle of the night last night and say, what is your sermon about in one brief statement? It is this, Christ is victorious. And because of that, all of these other things take place and we'll see how they fit into that one overarching idea that Peter wants you as a believer and me to understand about the Lord Jesus Christ and our life in him. As one writer put it, we move on from a portrait of Christ in the previous sermon from 1 Peter of the patient and enduring one to now the conquering and victorious one. And that is one theme that I think we so often miss in Scripture. It's the conquering nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is so easy to get sidetracked by other things in the Word of God. And yet when we come down to the end of it, to the book of Revelation, to maybe the most confusing book to some people in all of Scripture, the message is still the same and it's clearer there than anywhere else. Jesus wins. Jesus is the victorious King over sin and death and hell and the grave. Christ is the victorious one, brothers and sisters. So when you go home this afternoon and you turn on the news and this world seems to be the absolute mess that it is, remember this, Jesus has won. Jesus will win. Jesus is winning. Though we suffer in this world for the sake of righteousness, which was the theme of our previous passage, Christ now is seen as the one suffering in order to make us righteous. We may suffer for righteousness' sake, but He suffered to make us righteous. And in doing so, He has become Christus Victor, Christ the Conqueror, Christ the Victorious King. Brothers and sisters, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, we, like the, the, the original recipients of Peter's letter, are living in a fallen world where suffering is a reality for us because of our faith. Praise God, we have a faith worth suffering for. But the reality is that in a fallen world, they will not always patiently endure our faith. In fact, more often than not in the history of the church, they have persecuted the Christian faith. And this is of 
tremendous value and comfort for us to know we're not alone when we face opposition, is it? It's comforting to know we're not the only ones. It's comforting to know Peter writes to people who understand they have been where we are and where we are going if Jesus delays his coming. And yet the theme continues to be this, that the one who suffered far greater things than us has overcome all things, and he is reigning. In fact, the theme of suffering is really the greater motif of Peter's entire letter. Eighteen times in this short little book, Peter mentions suffering. But this morning, I want to direct your eye in the Word of God to observe the comforts in Christ's victory. And there are three comforts that I want you to see this morning from the text. Number one, there is the uniqueness of Christ's comfort. Then there is the power of Christ's comfort. And then there is lastly, the certainty of Christ's comfort. But we begin in verse 18 with the uniqueness of Christ's comfort. Now, I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but let's all take inventory of our own life. Do you ever struggle with doubt? Do feelings of doubt at times overwhelm you? A a lack of assurance. A lack of security. A lack of comfort in the world in which you live. Perhaps Satan even tempts you to wonder if Jesus, the risen Lord, understands. And Peter wants us to know this in response to those questions. Here's Peter's encouragement to us. For whatever you suffer, not only at the hand of the world, but at the weakness of your own heart and the weakness of your own faith, Christ has suffered more than that for you. And He has borne your sorrows and borne your sins on the cross and now has risen victorious over those so that those things are overcome for us as we are in Him. When we as Christians, and I think you would agree with this, are constantly bombarded by the opposition of the world around us, the world against us, we can tend to lose track of where we are and we can lose perspective. Think about uh, uh, coming out of a sustained crisis. Perhaps it's a medical crisis and you are in the hospital, in the emergency room, and then transferred to a regular room. And, and, and over a period of time, once things kind of settle down, you come out and you realize, I've been here for 36 hours. And there, there's a certain disorienting feeling to that in, in battle, in warfare. That, that it can become so intense that you lose track of time and you come out disoriented as to where you are and when it is, what day is it. We forget basic things when we are bombarded by suffering. And in the world, as you and I as Christians, as we suffer for the righteousness earned for us by Jesus Christ, this life can become a drawn-out reality that seems to be endless in which there is no point of reference and those are lost and we become destabilized. But Peter writing under the gracious and understanding and caring hand of the Holy Spirit, gives us a north star to navigate by. 
through all the confusion, through all the storm, we, we need only look up at what Peter is saying to us this morning. Look at Jesus. Consider Christ in order to have that heading that you need for your life. Now I want you to notice the stabilizing and guiding truths that Peter then goes on to list for us in that vein, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. The first thing that we need to be reminded of, brothers and sisters, as we step out of this little taste of heaven and into the real world, is this. Christ has died a death of greatest inequality for us. Christ has died a death of greatest inequality for us. This is a buzzword today, right? Inequality, inequity. And and people talk all the time about the inequality of this and the inequity of that. And on and on the talking heads go. But brothers and sisters, as we consider what is most important in life, our sin and our relationship to God, the work of Jesus Christ, I am left to conclude nobody on this earth talking about the things of inequality and inequity have a clue when it comes to the inequality that Jesus suffered. The inequity that Jesus suffered. Notice where Peter goes. He died for our sins, the just for the unjust. Brothers and sisters, think about the the. Real inequality transpiring here. The Son of God lays aside heaven. He takes on frail humanity. Do not forget, Jesus was not a spirit being. He was a flesh and blood being. Truly God, truly man. He hungered. He thirsted. He wept. He slept. He knows. And He lays aside all. All of that in heaven to take on humanity in the midst of the mess that sin has made of his world. And he does it willingly. He, the very Son of God, God of very God, suffers in our place, not only on the cross, but he suffers everything that we suffer. On Tuesday nights in our seminal Bible study, we're looking at Jude's letter. And we're looking at Jude, and we talked about in the introduction this past week, who was Jude? He's the Lord Jesus' half-brother. He is one of the ones mentioned in John's Gospel, along with the other half-siblings of Jesus, that thought he was crazy and wanted to abandon him. Jesus knows human suffering. He is well acquainted and familiar with that. He feels the very pain of sin. Not his sin, but the world's sin upon him. The world's sin against him. And he takes our sin, having none of his own. He bears the sinful responses against righteousness in a way that we cannot imagine. And he dies for the ones who are dishing out the punishment. That, my friends, is inequity. That is inequality. The just for the unjust has died on the tree, the hymn says. 
Jesus comes and he suffers, the one who is just and righteous for those who are absolutely unjust. And by the way, have no interest in being just. Also translated righteous. We did not care to be righteous. We did not want to be righteous. We were not seeking God according to Romans chapter 3. There is none who seeks God. There is none righteous. No, not one. And yet Jesus comes and He suffers the just for the unjust. And then He gives us the greatest inequity. We do not deserve the outcome that Jesus gives to us. We don't deserve to live. That, but yet, as surely as Jesus lives this morning, those who believe in Him are living and will continue to live for all eternity. We did not deserve that outcome. We don't deserve the favor of God. Yet, brother and sister, do you realize this? Not only has Christ saved you for eternity, He has ushered you into the very family of God so that the Father looks upon you as joint heir with His Son. And all the blessings in Christ are yes and amen, and they are ours in Christ Jesus. You don't deserve that. But Jesus accomplished that for you. The just for the unjust. We receive all the benefits of the risen Son of God. And what are we? What are we? In our nature, born as sinners and rebels against God, and yet Christ changes the outcome for us. Peter says this is where you've got to start. As we consider living life in this fallen world, This is where you have to start. Notice, I jumped ahead of myself a bit, but just fall back a few words in verse 18. For Christ also died for sin. Uh, The the word literally translated here is suffered. Uh, Some translation have it as died, but the word is technically suffered. Christ suffered. Now certainly his death is part of his suffering, but his suffering was so much more than just his death. It's going through life in our place. Living a perfect life in our place. See, see, we we often go straight to the cross and say, Jesus died in my place. So true. He suffered the penalties of my sin on the cross. So true. But let's not forget Jesus also lived in our place. He fulfilled all of God's requirements in the law. Perfect righteousness was accomplished by Him. And so Peter says, For Christ also died or suffered for sins, Once and for all. There's nothing that can be added. The Greek word literally means that it occurs once. One time and only one time. It's not like the human priest in Hebrews chapter 9 who daily have to minister. Who daily give sacrifices. Christ once for all. And it is finished. Christ enters once, whereas the human high priests have to enter daily. The scripture tells us, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, like a human priest would have had to do, and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The sinless one became the sacrifice and the sacrificer. The purpose of this death and this suffering, Peter goes on to tell us, is this. Look at the the purpose statement here. So that, by the way, whenever you come across that phrase in your Bible, circle that. Because what follows is going to be very important in, in defining what has just come before it. So that, why did Jesus endure all of this? So that he might bring us to God. Simon Kistemacher says this in his commentary. It is to bring about a right relationship between the sinner who has rebelled against his creator. It's to bring about a right relationship between them. Another defines it as conveying a sense that a peace has been negotiated. It's armistice armistice day in the most cosmic sense of the understanding of that term, there has been a negotiated peace that has been finalized by what Jesus did. So that God now responds, brothers and sisters, not in wrath to us, but in grace. No more wrath for us. We now have the favorable response of God toward us. Because of what Jesus did in suffering in our place. The just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. What is of great comfort to me and I hope it is to you fellow Christian. Is that he who is just and he who has been part of the Trinity from eternity past. Who is accepted by the Father in all of his perfection. He's given His life for us so that we are. So that we are right with God. If that doesn't come for you, perhaps it's because you think too little of what your sin is. Too lightly of what eternity holds. But what is of greatest comfort to the Christian with a biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished is this. He has made us accepted. No longer cursed and judged by the Father. Unique in the reality that the perfect man gave up his life for the most imperfect of men. This is what makes the comfort of Christ so unique. He is unique in that he died for worthless, rebellious men and women. Listen to Paul's words in Romans chapter 5. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died. For whom? The ungodly. Not the morally upright. Not the humanitarian. Not the philanthropist. Not the really nice guy around the corner. Not the salt of the earth people. Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. Maybe the best person in the world can think of, maybe someone would die for them. But God demonstrates His love 
In other words, that is not love to die for those people. What is love is that he demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, that's when Christ died for us. Our greatest comfort is in the uniqueness of that. Only Christ would do that. No one else. No one else. And as our high priest who alone has the right of access into the holy place where God himself is, Jesus now goes before us. He enters before us into the very presence of God and he claims us as his own. Now, if that doesn't comfort you, you are inconsolable. There is no greater comfort than that. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, the Holy of Holies, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says previously, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Christ is there. Let us go to the throne of grace, brothers and sisters, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Are you going to the throne of grace? Can you go to the throne of grace? Have you trusted Christ's work for you? Have you repented of sin and run to Jesus as your only hope? To be right with a holy God? Well, do. And you can then enter with confidence to the throne of grace. Because Christ is there. This is so unique. No one else could do this. Not the human priest. Not human volunteers to die in our place. Christ alone is unique in his comfort because of what he has done for us. Our suffering is nothing then. Doesn't our suffering start to not lose its painfulness at times? But doesn't it lose something of its overwhelming fear? Its crippling distraction? Listen, Christ has suffered far more for us and he has earned for us the victory and he didn't have to we deserve all the wrath that we get as sinners but our comfort is this that we instead receive the undeserved desserts of a risen and glorious savior while the sufferings of christ are unique they are no less powerful. And I want you to see that now in verses 19 and 20. That was the uniqueness of Christ's comfort in verse 18. Now we look at the power of Christ's comfort in verses 19 and 20. As Peter concludes at the end of verse 18, he has been made alive in his spirit. Though Christ died and suffered in his humanity physically, he was made alive in his spirit. We, we talked about this last semester in our, on Wednesday nights in our study of the doctrine of Christ. That Christ has two natures. He was truly God and He was truly man. And when Jesus dies on the cross, it is not God who has died. God can't die. His humanity dies. 
but his spirit lives on. And th- th- again, there, there are this, we're getting into somewhat of what might be perceived as confusing here. Because Christ's spirit now goes and somehow Christ is preaching to spirits who are in prison. Not only is he uniquely suffered for us, boy, what a, this is like shifting an 18-wheeler into the next gear without a clutch. So it would seem, it is just, wow, man, what a change. We go from these great comforts now to preaching in prison to spirits who are still bound. There's two views to that in the Bible-believing world in which we live. Number one. One view would say that Christ's spirit was actively alive and operative between his death and resurrection. Another would say, no, this simply refers to Christ's unique resurrected state. And regardless of which viewpoint you take on this, it comes out to the same conclusion. Jesus is victorious. And those who are in Jesus are victorious. And so it doesn't change the, the overarching message of Peter's passage but let's take it as it were and I will give you what I believe the scriptures teach not my opinion but what I think the scriptures are clearly speaking of here there's evidence again for both views and good men would disagree on this but working chronologically through the Bible and through the events of Jesus' death and those three days in the tomb and then the resurrection, it would seem that the Spirit of Christ is still alive and actively at work in those three days in which his body is buried. Paul speaks of it well, I think, in Ephesians 4, in verse 8. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high... He led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all heavens, so that he might fill all things. And I I think Paul gives us a, a very healthy snapshot here of Christ coming to earth, Christ's burial, Christ's active work in the spirit while his body lays entombed and also of his ascension. I don't think this is strictly about his ascension in Acts 1. Even in what was hoped by his enemies to be the darkest day for Jesus, his ultimate demise. Think about this, brothers and sisters. Think about Jesus being laid in the tomb. There had never been a party in the deepest parts of the earth in Satan's realm like there was that day. Thrilled that the Lord of life had had life taken from him. So they thought. So what they hoped was the darkest day, Jesus actively demonstrates that no, not is it not only the darkest day, it is the most triumphant day to date. Because the resurrection is still hours away. What does Jesus do? By the power of God, Christ is made alive. He is God. He is alive. He had died in His submissive uh, human humanity and died to bear physically the punishment for sin. And yet Jesus is alive in the Spirit. In verse 19, it says, He then goes and makes proclamation to the spirits who are now 
in prison. The very forces allied against you and I this morning, the very forces that were allied against him, Jesus now goes, and while they think they have him by the throat, he begins to preach to them. That'll scare the socks off of you. Here's this one that we think we've beaten, and now he descends into the pit, into the abyss, to preach to demonic spirits. And by the way, this is not preaching to them in the sense of calling them to a gospel understanding. That is the, 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 the Greek word euangelion, to preach the good news. This is simply the word keruzo, which means to herald, to deliver a mandate from a sovereign. And Jesus doesn't go into the, the pit and say, hey, no, all you little demons, will you trust me? Will you accept Jesus in your heart? And if you do, I'll let you go. No, he goes and he preaches, I am the living one. You are in judgment for your rebellion against a holy God. Jesus proclaims life in him. He proclaims victory through him. So he, he is not, you know, taught his preach. Don't ever preach at people, they say. Uh, Jesus most certainly did. He is preaching at these spirits in prison. The worst they could do has been done. What do they get for their efforts? A sermon. A sermon of judgment against their sin. A bold message. Jesus is proclaiming to them his own victory. Now, quickly, who are these spirits? Well, from the context of Peter's words, and then we can cross-reference this with Jude as well. These are spirits who were permanently bound in the days of Noah. They've been there a long time. They've been, in, they've been in the abyss for a long time. And we don't have time to go back and treat this as we did in our sermon series in Genesis. But this is a time in human history that is probably the darkest of all dark days. You have some way demonic forces that are at work like we've never seen. Thank God. They are at work. They have invaded God's creation. It's a unique frame of time. Peter references this again in his second letter, in chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. For if God did not spare any angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world. This obviously figures uh, prominently in Peter's thinking. And so these are spirits that are bound, apparently, according to context, in Noah's day. These spirits that were somehow infiltrating and possessing humankind. They were mating then with the, the, the daughters of men whom they saw to be beautiful and producing a master race of sinners. These giants, these People who crushed and snuffed out life in Noah's day. They're cohabitating with mankind in an attempt to destroy humanity. Hasn't that always been Satan's goal? From, from the garden until Jesus' death and onward, isn't that Satan's goal to just destroy 
everything, we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said that's what he does. The thief comes not but for to kill and to steal and to destroy. Don't be shocked by that. And yet here are these spirits. Jude in Jude 6 and 7 says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the day of judgment. On the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. These are spirits that were active and present in that day and God sentenced them then to the abyss. That doesn't mean all demonic spirits are there, but these particular ones, there's a particular group that apparently are there. And while Jesus has suffered death for us, He goes and He preaches to them. Do you want a fearless leader? Find Him in Jesus. Jesus is literally preaching to the damned. Now remind me, who persecutes you? You see what Peter's doing, he's so immersing their mind in Christ and what Christ has done. It's kind of like, oh yeah, this is nothing compared to that. I mean, th- these, are, these are lower magistrates who are, you know, persecuted. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Not going to lie. Yes, it hurts sometimes. But did, do you know who our Lord is? He went and preached in hell. Who's persecuting you again? And who went and preached for you? That's right. Are they stronger than Christ? No. Are they able to overcome his victory if those spirits in hell couldn't do it? No. That's right. Keep that in the forefront of your mind, Christian. Do you see a reason for hope here? You see why Peter said what he said just a few verses earlier in verse 15? Be ready to give a defense of the hope that is in you. Remember, we said this is not a doctrinal treatise. This isn't a PhD dissertation. He says, give a defense of your hope. Just defend your hope. Why do you have hope? Uh, Because my Savior lived and died in my place. And while his body was in a tomb, he preached to the prison spirits. The, The most wicked days that we've ever seen. He went and preached to them without fear. And then on the third day, after he finished his sermon, he rose from the dead. To put an exclamation point on the sermon that he had preached to them. So who persecutes you and why are you afraid of them? If you're on Jesus' side. Peter then closes with the certainty of Christ's comfort for us. The certainty of Christ's comfort for us. So having begun that line of thought surrounding the days of Noah and Christ's victory and his overwhelming power. He now continues on with an illustration of how you and I gain certainty from this. Comfort from this. Notice what he says that he went and preached to these who were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. These these spirits and these people are actively involved in wickedness and God kept waiting. He was patient in the days of Noah. As D. Edmund Hebert said, 
God's patience with obstinate evil is marvelous indeed, but it does have its limits. And so here's the limit. God says enough. And during the day of God's patience, as God was patiently waiting upon the earth, He tells Noah to build an ark. Why? Because He's a gracious God. Because He's a God of salvation. Because God always has a remnant and He'll always make a way for His remnant. It may not always be that our physical lives, our earthly lives are sustained, but He will make a way eternally for us. He says, and during that construction of that ark in which a few, that is eight persons, the Greek word is literally souls, eight souls were brought safely through the water. Crisis moment. And yet God in His patience brings them through the water. Do you see it? Noah doesn't bring them through the water. God is the one. He's the the subject of the thought here. He brings them safely through the water. Eight souls. Eight souls on board. Um, I was listening um, last week to the air traffic control call that went out from Midland I guess three years ago now when that B-1 bomber made its emergency landing here in Midland carrying a nuclear weapon on board. Their engine flamed out. It was an emergency landing. And you talk about cool as ice. Those pilots, those air traffic controllers, no panic. And they kept repeating, how many souls on board? How many souls on board? Four souls on board. Four souls on board. So the language used. Just as then, there was a way of escape. The way of escape is that God brings them through the water. And so very clearly, again, we have the idea, let's not get bogged down into to what might be confusing to us because there is a biblical explanation for this. The very clear picture of this is, then is this. God saved those eight souls. It's not, you know, Home Depot or Lowe's. Noah could do it. They could help. So three cheers for Noah and the lumberyard. This is God doing this. God bringing them through. Both the idea of a small remnant and the power of God in Christ would have been immediately applicable to these people. How many Christians were there in Peter's day? Not very many. A solid core, to be sure. But there were more of them than there were of us, if that makes sense. That they, they feel and they, they have the sense that the whole world is coming down upon them. Locally in Asia Minor and nationally and globally in Rome, the, the, the Christians are being squeezed. And they are a minority in their own day. And so when Peter says to them, hey, just remember, God saved eight people. If God cared about eight people, I bet He cares about us. And God brought them through something never before seen. An ark. What's an ark? What's a boat before Noah's day? Foreign concept. Rain? What's rain? 
And, and, and so they're grasping this. Yeah, what we have something greater. Christ, a risen Christ. Yeah, nobody had heard of an ark either, but we have a risen Christ. Nobody had heard of a resurrection to that point either. And it's for a small remnant. Yeah, we, we can relate to these people. The massive number of those not on the ark who mocked Noah. The spirits who proliferated evil in Noah's day trying to derail God's work in Noah's day. No problem. God brought them through. In our day, our victorious salvation in Christ saves us. Christ's victorious reign, His rule over death, His resurrection, His death on our behalf. Notice what Peter says. These eight persons were brought safely through the water. Now you might look at that and go, wow. It looks like their salvation is because of the roiling water. The depths being opened up. That's not necessarily what they're saying, but you, okay, make the case. The water's lifted the ark. Put them on top of the water instead of under the water. A hydrologist could appreciate that. And if the ark were a type of Christ, it becomes even more understandable because Peter says corresponding to that, just like there was an ark to bring them through the water, baptism now saves you. Now, what is baptism? What is baptism? Is baptism of the first priority and order necessarily the water baptism that we see believers participating in? Or is there a greater reality, a greater baptism of which that outward sign is merely a picture? And the second is the answer. And Larry read it for us this morning. We have been baptized into Jesus Christ. That that's the most important baptism. Because notice what Peter goes on to say. It's not the removal of dirt from the flesh. In other words, it's not physical baptism that saves you but it is rather what physical baptism represents now understand in the new testament it was foreign for someone to say they were a believer and refuse baptism that's doesn't jive because everyone in christ would want to be identified with christ and so he's not belittling water baptism, but what he is saying is this, that the greater baptism of Christ in you and you in Christ and you being placed into him, that's what really matters because the physical work, it's not about removing anything outward. It's the inner work. It is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Not all the hellish powers of Satan can stop you when you are buried with Christ. Because what did Christ do to the grave? He shattered it. So let Satan and his demons do their worst. You are in Christ and Christ has already come out of the worst they could do to him. Be comforted, believers. Take comfort in the certainty that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so you will be, and nothing can hinder that. It's that spiritual baptism. You are in Christ, and think about all that Christ has accomplished. That's your future. 
that's your reality. Rather, what I'm getting at is an appeal to God. Now, the word can mean asking a question when he speaks of an appeal. But I think it's better translated this way. The humble submission to God for cleansing. Some have pointed to this and said that the appeal, the, 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 the catechism element to the word where you are asked a question and, and believers would recite an answer to the one giving them the question and the one baptizing. And we do this today, right? We, we, when we baptize, we ask, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Yes. With God's help, do you promise before this congregation to walk with Him in His power in a new life? Yes. So it could be that, but I think more appropriate for the context here, it is not we are giving God an answer, giving God uh, a response to a question. Rather, we are humbly submitting to God for cleansing. We are asking God an appeal to God to give us and grant us a cleansed and forgiven conscience. Free from the, the torment of sin that takes away comfort. Rather, we seek that constitution of mind that is convinced by Christ and by His salvation for us. We may confess a clear conscience to God, but only because Christ has confessed us before God previously. We can tell God we have a clear conscience. We can can say, yes, I believe. Yes, I do this. Why? Because Christ has already confessed us. He's holding us. That's why Jude says in verse 24, Now to Him who is able to keep you from falling. Not yourself. You're like the little kid walking on the precipice of the Grand Canyon. Your parents holding you. You're not holding them. Trust me. Christ is holding. Christ is keeping and their victory is from God through Christ and the power of His resurrection. Notice how Peter finishes verse 21. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We just can't emphasize the resurrection enough. We can't. And the moment we begin to try to see life as a Christian apart from the resurrection or only minimally incorporating that into our thinking. We've lost our comfort. You'll find no comfort in a Christian life that is not heavily centered on the resurrection. Christ's victory for you. This is the emphasis of the entire passage. It's not our faith. It's not our actions. It's not us trying to remind ourselves of some human comfort. It is what Christ has done. Notice what Peter goes on to say in verse 22. This resurrected Christ, who now is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Noah had an ark. That ark took him through the physical dangers of judgment. But brothers and sisters, 
Let me remind all of us here. No physical structure will be sufficient for the judgment that is to come. There is no physical ark. 2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its work will be burned up. There is no physical ark to protect you from that. The only protection is Jesus Christ and His resurrection. And by faith, all who trust in Christ have been baptized into Him just as we are baptized into water as a sign of that. We are placed into Christ just like Noah and his family were placed in an ark. Romans 6.3, let me read what Larry read earlier. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Is that comforting? Yes. Immensely. Why? Because the one in whom we are baptized now sits, notice where he is sitting, at the right hand of God. He's in the place of power. He's in the place of power. He's in the place of privilege. As God returned triumphant from the battle, he's led captivity captive. (laughs) Think about that picture. It's all under His feet. He's in a place of accomplishment. The the final sacrifice has been offered and now He is set down. He's in a place of exaltation. He alone deserves and will be worshipped. There is no more appropriate place for the victor to sit than at the right hand of the Father. And He's there. Notice what's under Him. Angels, authority, and power. What were tormenting these believers? Angels, authority, and powers. In their day. We see it in our day. We see it, don't we? We look at the world around us, and and if you're like the discussions in our home, you say, that's just demonic. There, There is evil proliferating in our day. That, that I, so many of you who are older than I am say, we've never seen it like this. My grandparents never talked about things that we talk about today. Power, corrupt power, authorities that have no interest in your best interest. No interest in the gospel. No interest in Christianity. No interest in what is right, in the rule. We look at all that and we mourn, don't we? But notice where it is. It's under his feet. He's at the right hand. They are under his feet. They have been subjected to him. Psalm 110. They have been placed under his feet. Now tell me who's king. Jesus, the reigning, resurrected Son of God. Now tell me, where are you in Be encouraged, believer. Be comforted. Yours is the victory 
through the victorious one. Let's pray. Gracious God, how we praise You, Lord Jesus, our God, our Savior, our King, our ruling one, our comfort, our hope. How we praise You for what You have done, what You are doing, and what You will do. You are not threatened, and You are not even opposed. To say that You are opposed would to be to intimate that You somehow were capable of losing, and yet You've already won, and You are already at the right hand. And all of the things and the powers of this earth which would so easily discourage, cause us to fear, they are all already under Your feet. You will not return in power and in glory in order to accomplish that. You will return in power and glory to demonstrate what has already been reality. And we thank You that You are not only a Savior of such might and power, but You are a Savior who is near and compassionate and You care about even eight, even one. You are near to us. So may we realize Lord Jesus, by Your Spirit, convince and remind all who are placing their faith in You and have done so and continue to do so that they are secure in You. We are in the One who has risen from the dead. We are in the One who is ruling and reigning. And may the uniqueness, may the power, and may the certainty of Christ's comfort be ours Holy Spirit, as You remind us of these truths each day of our life, use Your Word now, Father. Holy Spirit, go with us and continue to preach sermons better than any man could preach from these texts. And point us to Jesus. And if there's one who's not come to Jesus as Savior as of yet, draw and save them. Bring them to Christ, we pray. Grant them a repentant spirit. Grant them faith to believe that they might know this sweet comfort as well. We pray this all in Your name, Jesus, because You are worthy and because You have won. Amen.